I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community. The Digital Initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming today. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure uh, to introduce Halvarian. This is a joint seminar with the Technology Operations Management Unit and the Digital Initiative. Um, we could take the entire 90 minutes discussing Hal's career, so uh, we won't. Uh, the, I mean, the, the simple explanation is he's written textbooks, many of us were trained on. <laughs> he's written popular trade books that were bestsellers. He noticed at an early moment, both as a researcher and as a, a, in a pragmatic sense, that the internet wasn't going to go away. <laughs> and maybe had some value in it. And he was reminding uh, uh, a number of us that uh, 16 years ago, he, he got a phone call from Eric Schmidt to come over and what, what was it, take a look? Give us a hand. Give us a hand, there you go. And so he's, he's hit a 16 year anniversary uh, working with Google. Um, he, today, Hal is the, uh, has many titles, the chief economist, I think is the one you, uh, you use, and it's a, a great pleasure that he took time out of his busy, busy schedule to come and share his, his insights with us. And, and so, um, we're a bigger group, so we ask for a little bit of civility from you, a little more than usual. <laughs> and, uh, please, welcome Hal there. Thank you very much. I'm very impressed how well you match supply and demand in seats. <laughs> there must be some invisible hand at work in doing this. And, and just if anybody is standing, there is one seat left over here, uh, at least if you, if you need it. Okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, this topic. Uh, this is my pretentious title, the Automation and Procreation but actually I decided we wanted something a little more informal, so we call it bots and tots. <laughs> and, uh, so what I want to talk about is the future of work. Everybody's talking about the future of work these days, and that's looking at the demand side of the labor market, the fact that there might be lower demand for human workers in the future. So here's the labor market, and we all recognize this. And, uh, okay, so maybe automation, AI, robotics, whatever, is going to shift the demand for workers in, lowers the wage, reduces the amount of employment. But what about the other curve? The other curve, the supply of labor. Because as we all know, and I will go into details towards the end of the talk, there's very big demographic forces at work here, and a lot is changing on the supply side of labor as well as on the demand side. So we get a clear picture, or to get a possible picture of what the world's going to look like in a few decades, we want to look at the supply curve of labor as well, which is primarily driven by demographic uh, factors. So I'm going to talk first about the bots, and then I'll talk about the tots, and we'll try to put them together. And I should say this is there's, there's a very informal 
talk. There are no equations in the paper. I was told by my editor at Harvard Business School Press when he wrote Information Rules, I was, had an equation in the book, and she says, you know, every equation you put in a book cuts the sales in half. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite right, but it was a right in principle. And uh, I said, well, what about an identity? And she said, well, I guess that's okay. So I will have an identity later on. <laughs> anyway, um, the tots is a supply, the demand, uh, the bots is a demand. So let's start with the bots. Okay, job ceiling. Everybody's seen the headlines. Smart robots will steal your job. Uh, a robot is after your job, 1980. Here we go. They bid for jobs in outer space and in U.S. factories as well, 1960. 1935, right? What's happening there is robot brains out to man's mind in speed and accuracy results. And then here we go to 1812. So it's been going on for a long time, this concern, this worry about automation, destroying <coughs> jobs, and it keeps coming. These slides, by the way, are from Jason Furman uh, pointing me towards these, uh, these clippings. Uh, but now look, 2017, all of a sudden, America's growing labor shortage. And there's a question that we need to sort out, and I hope to sort out a little bit, there's a cyclical issue in terms of just the business cycle and unemployment, employment changing over time, and then there's a longer run demographic effect. So my claim, which you'll see documented in a, in a while, is in fact we're probably looking towards a tight labor market for the next 30 years. And that just comes from looking at the demography. So we'll think about some of the implications of that and what the evidence is that supports that uh, claim. Because if you look, there's shortages of construction workers, agricultural workers, truck drivers, forklift drivers, dairy farm workers, <coughs> on and on and on. Everybody's uh, complaining about this. We saw a sign in the restaurants, a uh, sign in the window of the restaurant that said, dishwasher wanted, pulse necessary. <coughs> and that was about the only requirement that they'd take, on, they'd take uh, anybody. All right, so the economy can absorb big shocks to the labor market. We've seen this in the past. Let's look at very big shock, women entering the labor force, which of course, back here, 1950, there were about uh, 20, about half the uh, workforce was women. And now if you look at it, it's like 85%. Uh, so that was a really big shock and it happened, really we saw it mostly happen in the 60s and 70s period but it was a large shock to the labor market that was absorbed without really any uh, issues. And of course, there was the baby boomers, which was also a very big shock. So you look at the demographics, back here in the 30s, during the Depression, birth rate went way down, the war kept it down. After the war, we saw this big baby boom, 20-year period, 1946 to 1964. So a lot of babies, the baby bust, and the echo 20 years after the initial baby boom, we're starting to see the children of the baby boomers having babies, and now we come up to this period today when those baby boomers are all retired. And here's the interesting thing, as the workers shift to being retirees, they hope to continue consuming, okay? Well, we've taken somebody out of the labor market, the working 
side of the population moved into the retirement side, so we would increase the dependency ratio, as the demographers say. You have to have the people who are in the labor force working more, producing more output at least, in order to keep those retirees consuming. So, so far at least, we've managed to absorb that, not without a little bit of pain about uh, entitlement programs and other policies, but uh, so far so good. But over here, certainly we did see the labor market absorb those additional incremental workers. Spreadsheet apocalypse. This is from the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> what do we see? Back in 1983, the release of Lotus 1, 2, 3, we saw the demand for bookkeepers, accounting, and auditing clerks fall quite dramatically, but we saw an increase, continuing increase, in financial analysts and financial managers and accountants and auditors. And I'm sure you're happy about that at HBS because the fact that you reduce this dull, unpleasant, and tedious work here and replace it with much better and more interesting analytic work was a big plus for a business in the U.S. This is an interesting one. The BLS still tracks the number of video records, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. They created that back here where it was important, over 100,000 people working in that area. And now, of course, it's virtually nothing, so maybe at some point they'll stop measuring. But we didn't really see any kind of tragedy with people sitting in the street corners and the malls saying, I'll rate movies for 10 cents or whatever. Uh, again, the market absorbed that decline. And it's important to understand when we look at this issue of job loss, you want to distinguish between tasks and jobs. So automation doesn't generally eliminate jobs, and I'll argue for that in a minute, but it releases, changes tasks, and that may change the responsibilities that are associated with different jobs. So you have manual tasks like washing clothes. It's, it's phenomenal when you look at tiny studies of how much time people spend washing washing clothes, very labor-intensive practice, drying dishes, mowing lawns, digging holes, chopping wood, etc. And then the cognitive rules here, memorizing maps, making change for purchases, adding columns and numbers, and so on. That's true, if you eliminate all the tasks that are associated with a job, you eliminate the job, but that's really pretty rare. So for example, Jim Besson has looked at the 270 occupations listed in the 1950 U.S. Census, and only one has been eliminated due to automation. You might think about it, don't shout it out, just think about it for a minute. There it is, elevator operator. <laughs> now the elevator operator, it's kind of an interesting job because what were the tasks? Well, they were monitoring safety, they were monitoring security, who got in, who didn't. They greeted people, they answered questions, they provided services, they announced special prices or offers, and department stores, they did a lot of tasks. And most of those tasks are still being done, okay? Only now, when you walk into a tall building, there might be a security person there, there might be a greeter, there might be a person that's uh, guiding you to where you want to go, etc. except the job title has changed, and there's nobody who actually operates the elevators anymore just you folded those tasks into other jobs. You didn't really need 
uh, security monitor greeter if you had the elevator person back in the 50s, back in 1950, because that was taken care of by them. Now that's a separate job category which has another set of tasks associated with it. And most jobs are more complicated than we think. Let's take a groundskeeper. There's this wonderful resource called ONET. ONET was funded by the Department of Labor, and what they did is they tried to compile a list of all the tasks that were associated with a job. So they had, I think, two, roughly 2,000 job categories. They went out and interviewed people who had these job categories. They said, what tasks are in your job? They compiled this up, and anybody can go look at it. It really makes for quite interesting reading. So a groundskeeper is, we don't think of that as a very skilled job, something you can do without very much training, but here's a list of the tasks that are associated with being a groundskeeper. So in California, everybody has a groundskeeper. I'm not quite sure what the situation is on the East Coast these days. But um, they do all these different things. They require modest level of expertise, but the point is the variety of the tasks. And, oh, that's just the first page. Here's the next page, and there's a page or two after that. So it goes on to roughly 30 or 35 different tasks. Lots of different things that they do. Can we build a robotic groundskeeper? Pretty challenging. I ask our robotics people at Google. And yeah, with 10 years and a billion dollars, you could probably design a groundskeeper who would do one of those tasks. Remember, there's 35 of them. So there's a lot of tasks to being a groundskeeper. And it would be very challenging to automate the entire set of tasks. And you think about where robots work well, it's in a standardized environment with repetitive tasks. So we spent 100 years optimizing the assembly line so that one person at one station does one job, and that's repeated over and over again. That was the whole model for assembly line. And it's not surprising that once you get that task made so homogeneous and so specialized in using exactly the right parts, you can take out the human and put in the machine. But most tasks aren't like that. What happens is, for most tasks, they require exception handling of one sort or another. Uh, cashiers are a good example, where they're partly automatable, but not entirely automatable. So half of all industrial robots are in auto plants, and then about 30% of the ones that are left are in electronics assembly plants, and then the rest are sort of miscellaneous cats. So where we've got the most standardization of tasks, the robots have moved in pretty Solidly, but where you don't have the task standardization or the machine standardization, you haven't seen as much. So a heterogeneous environment is much more difficult. And I think I have a quote. No, wait a minute. <laughs> there, perfect environment for a groundskeeping robot because it's completely uh, homogeneous. I've noticed a few of these grassy fields. <laughs> think of a hotel housekeeper, the maid at the hotel. Again, they have a very long list of tasks, 30 or so different tasks associated with it. Any one of those tasks you could automate with specific, with enough money and enough time and enough standardization. You see, if, you, if every hotel room looked like that, it would be easy. But when you have a very heterogeneous environment, it's going to be 
much, much harder. And I think I have a quote. Yes, from Henry Ford to Elon Musk. Henry Ford wrote the article on mass production for the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1911 edition. And he said, in mass production, there are no fitters. And for us, it's hard to know what that means, but what it meant was when you assembled things in the 1880s, 1890s, there was a guy there with a file who had to file the parts off to make sure they fit in the position that were necessary. This was in bicycle shops, this was in carriage shops, this was... Fitters was a profession, okay? Because you had to get the parts to really have interchangeable parts, you had to have somebody who made them fit. So you couldn't have that in an assembly line because the assembly line is supposed to move at a uniform speed, dealing with these homogeneous objects, and if somebody had to do the filing to get all the parts to fit, it would not work. So it really wasn't until 1909, or the very earliest parts of this century, that the assembly line, in the sense we know it now, became feasible, and it was very important that you were able to get standardized parts that were good enough to eliminate the uh, role of fitters, and now, fast forward to Elon Musk, who said, yes, excessive automation at Tesla was a mistake. My mistake, humans are underrated. How could, you can't believe that Elon Musk would ever say that, but it's true. And it was the same problem. It's a problem here in this, uh, in this line. Yes, robots can apply torque consistently, but they couldn't account for the threads that weren't straight, or the nuts weren't quite right, or the bolts that didn't fit, or the fasteners don't align. That's why Teslas have wind noise problems, squeaks and rattles. I didn't actually know that was the case, but apparently it is. It's because of this issue of robotic assembly when you don't have perfect homogeneity of the parts. Now that will improve because you can improve both on the environment that the robots operate in, you can improve on making the parts better standardized, but it's not something that immediately works out of the box. Heterogeneity is a problem, it was a problem in 1909, and it's still a problem in uh, 2018. <clears throat> so then the question is what tasks can be automated and how will those tasks be associated with job titles? Naturally the thing you need to do to look at the future and I can give you an answer to that. In fact, you can pick whatever answer you want because Oxford did a study that said 45%, PricewaterhouseCoopers said 40%, OEC does 10%. There's a huge variety of opinions about what fraction of those tasks can actually be automated realistically. And it's important to understand when you go look at that ONET list, which is in fact what the data is for most of these studies, it's one thing to say, yes, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. But to replace the job, you have to do them all, or at least find other related jobs that you can hand off these tasks uh, to. These are the 10 largest occupations in the US. <coughs> Retail, salesperson, cashier, food preparation, so on. Most of the jobs are services. I think all those jobs are services. That's 80% of private US employment. But these jobs, just these 10 jobs, are 21% of all employment, which is kind of amazing. And none of those jobs, except for one, really require all that much training, and none of those jobs, except for one, actually pays well, and that is registered nurse. 
So RN, which is in the top 10 here, has an average salary of about 70000 and is going up. When the Department of Labor introduced its Occupational Outlook <coughs> Handbook for the next few years, one of the newspaper reporters summarized it with two words, nerds and nurses. <coughs> That's where the job opportunities were, okay? Both of them require the education, both of them require mastering a set of skills, but both of them work well. The other jobs, there were, in the, in the Occupational Outlook Handbook at least, they forecast uh, increased employment in some of those jobs, but there would be something of a debate going on between the people who think automation is going to take away the retail salesperson job, the cashier job, and so on. But um, we're not quite sure how well it'll work out because it's not going to take away all the cashier jobs, again, because of the exception handling. And if you go to <coughs> Home Depot and stand there and try to run your things through the machine, there's always some exception. If you go to the airlines and they're issuing the tickets, there's always some exception <coughs> handling. There's always things that make it not perfectly homogeneous. So the uh, question is how many of those uh, non-homogeneous tasks you have to deal with to handle, do the exception handling that's, uh, that's necessary. The first invasion of the machines back in the 1880s, washing machines, dryers, dishwashers, vacuums, sewing machines, bicycles, of course later then into the 20th century, automobiles and so on, none of them work like humans. This idea of a human-eyed robot is kind of nuts because washing machines wash clothes in a completely different way, dishwashers completely different way, vacuum cleaners, so what you need to do is you ought to think about appliances or robots, if you want to call them robots, but they're not the science fiction robots that are humans. They're often something that's completely different than uh, humans that can actually get the task uh, done. So it's kind of an interesting uh, and important difference but what you really need to think about is not building a general purpose robot, but building a robot that, or building a machine that gets some task done and then you can utilize those machines <coughs> for doing those tasks, with some exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> Work week, another very important idea. Back in 1850, Work Week was around 66 hours to 70 hours. A lot of it was agricultural, of course, and the cows don't know it's a weekend. Uh, fast forward here to 1955, it's about 38 and a half hours, and it stayed in, in that region for uh, quite a long time. So not only do we see the work week change over time, there's also a dramatic difference across countries. Here we are, 38.6, pretty good alignment there. Look at the Netherlands. 29 hours a week. It's a whole one day less than us. All right. And how do they accomplish that? Well, they built a society and an economy to make it easy to do part-time work. Okay. So daycare is an obvious example. There's a lot of moms that have a not a 40-hour work week job, but maybe a 15-hour work week. There's a lot of other examples that are interesting about the Netherlands, for, ex for example, uh, if you pay up your Social Security equivalent and you pay up your health care equivalent, then you can go work at a job and neither you nor your employer has to contribute to the Social Security fund. 
Here, it's exactly the opposite. If you're retired, collecting Social Security, and you go out and work a few hours a week, you're taxed at the normal tax rate on those earnings. The same Social Security is withdrawn as it would be otherwise, and it's kind of double <coughs> dipping. That is, the government's doing the double dipping in this case. If you really wanted to encourage people to do some part-time work, and this goes back to the point I made earlier, namely, when people retire, they expect to continue to consume, and so somebody has to produce the stuff that they consume, and it may be they want to encourage part-time work. And we all know from talking to our Uber or Lyft drivers, one of the biggest attractions of the job is you can work the hours you want. And this gig economy, I'm not sure I like the word gig economy, but there is a huge demand out there for doing part-time work, and as people get older, particularly they'd like to reduce hours and do this work, and we want an economy that makes it easy for them to do that, like in the Netherlands, rather than one that makes them hard for them to do that, if we think that there's going to be tight labor markets, okay? What do people want? More jobs and less work. And that's what technology can provide because it may well be that you're doing less work. That's what happens from the demand and supply shifts I showed you earlier. But it's more jobs because people are spending less time at work and more time at leisure, either because they're retired or maybe they're doing something they prefer doing. That's exactly what technology could deliver. Everybody loves a three-day work week, I mean, a three-day uh, weekend. So even people who say, I love my job, they look forward to that three-day weekend arriving, and if we became 25% more productive, we could all have three-day weekends. <coughs> That's perfectly feasible because we know it works in the Netherlands. So why not make it permanent? So I want to turn now to education and training because everybody who looks at this fears this robotic invasion says, well, we have to have more education and training. That's the solution. But the trouble with that is uh, if we have more education and training, who does the crappy <coughs> jobs? Who is it that's doing those 10 biggest occupations in America that I showed you earlier that don't require a whole lot of education and training? So there's really a fallacy of composition. Yes, for any one person, it's better for them to be more educated. But if the whole society becomes more educated and the jobs that are available, to those people appropriate for the level of education they've achieved. And it's not at all clear. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And it plays back into this labor uh, automation issue. Yes, if the robots took over groundskeeping, we wouldn't need any more groundskeepers. But that's very unlikely to happen. So we're going to need those unskilled workers for some time until technology could replace that whole repetitive work. This is a little picture on looking at the uh, routine cognitive and routine manual labor, which have barely budged over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, versus the non-routine cognitive and the non-routine manual labor, which have both grown substantially. And when you look at the current figures for employment, you're seeing a lot of employment demand for relatively low-level jobs, the dishwasher example, waiters and waitresses, and so on. So that's where the shortages are most, uh, most extreme. 
And any economist would say, yeah, why isn't the wage increasing? And I think it is increasing, but it's increasing at a fairly uh, slow rate. The continual debate every time the wage and job numbers come out is, are we seeing uh, wage inflation uh, taking hold yet? And of course, well, this is just a slide to illustrate the point I made earlier that actually, yes, indeed, it's value for valuable for individuals to be educated, but it, that doesn't mean it's valuable to increase the entire level of education. Depends on what the labor market looks like. Best way to acquire job skills, and I think there's pretty much universal agreement on this, is on the job. It's got a lower opportunity cost. Anytime you have to take yourself away from the job, uh, you're losing your wages, which is bad. It's usually more relevant and more timely. It's much more focused, and there's a much higher motivation. So my brother had a heating and cooling business, and whenever Carrier released a new model air conditioner or furnace, his employees would all go over immediately and take the course about how to install and maintain that, because it was directly and immediately relevant to their jobs, really critical. So the extent that we can do on-the-job training, that's the most attractive uh, way to, uh, to handle this. Can de technology deliver it? Well, here's a little Google factoid for you. There are 500 million views a day of how-to videos. Okay, and I'll bet you everyone in this audience has looked at one of those videos at least, because it could be how to fix your toilet, how to repair your screen door, how to bake a souffle, how to play the piano, how to paint with watercolors, on and on and on. And it's not just the cognitive stuff. So this is Khan Academy. Anytime you want to brush up on arithmetic, you can go to that, or maybe you want to brush up on uh, recursive algorithms, et cetera, et cetera, all available to you on, the, on, the, uh, on uh, YouTube. And it's not just the cognitive stuff, but all this is available too. How to sweat a copper pipe. I don't know what it means. Maybe. <laughs> how to install a pre-hung door. I know what that means. How to do planks, how to weld cast iron, how to remove a strip bolt, how to short. Again, I'm sure that you've used this, and many of these are job-related tasks that's helpful for people to learn. And here we have this incredible technology now that can deliver any time of the day or night for free for very detailed tasks of high quality to anybody in the world, essentially, that has an internet connection. So that's unprecedented. We've never had that capability before, <coughs> delivering education materials at a level that people wanted to answer immediate problems. And this list also, you can believe, goes on and on and on and on. One of the things we want to do at YouTube is we'd like to get this better organized, better rated, maybe there's some credentialing or testing you could put in with it. There's lots of ways that you could improve that educational infrastructure, but there's not a shortage at all of instructional materials. Uh, they're definitely relevant and critical. Maybe there's a shortage or maybe there's a problem with providing the job certification and other things, but we've got the materials in very good, uh, very good position. Used to be that to be a cashier, you had to know how to make change. Irrelevant. Used to be to be a writer, you had to know how to spell. Thank God, that's gone. 
To be a taxi driver, you had to know city streets, and a hospitality worker might need to know a little bit of a foreign language, and maybe you, to be a gardener, you had to recognize plants, and to be a, work in a kennel, you had to recognize dogs. So remember, on a skills gap, you always hear this skills gap. Well, there's two ways to solve it. You can bring the worker up to what the employer is looking for, or you can bring the employer's demands down to what the worker can handle. And all of these tasks up here, we now have cognitive assistance from this, this little device. So you can make change with a computer, you can learn how to spell, you can drive around city streets. I was showing somebody Google Lens. I saw a plant that I thought was very attractive and looked good in my garden. I photographed it and then Google Lens told me all about that plant. It tells me what its name is, how much sun it needs, how much water it needs, where it does best, what kind of sunlight you need, etc., etc., etc. Same thing with dog breeds, with cat breeds, with anything else. You can photograph a dog and Google Lens will tell you what that dog is, which is pretty handy. So this cognitive assistance really helps people get jobs by reducing the tasks they need to master. Now, you look at the popular press, they focus on the negative side. They say, what do you mean all these London taxi cab drivers who spent two years learning the streets of London are now irrelevant? Well, yes, now you can replace that with a GPS system that gives you at least as good as knowledge of the streets of London from doing that. So that's really much better in terms of having to go through this huge fixed cost to prepare to acquire that occupation. Yes, there's a transition issue. Of course, there's a transitions issue, but you've got a more efficient economy and a better labor market when you've got acquiring those cognitive <coughs> skills made more easily. <coughs> Back in the 1880s, mechanization offered manual assistance. You could lift bigger weights and you could move things around and dig deeper holes and all this other stuff, but now what we've got is this cognitive assistant, which is making people more powerful on the cognitive side, which allows them to be more productive on the uh, working side. So here's my little summary of the bot section. Um, I, well, we'll see what your questions are at the end. I, I don't see these as very uh, controversial points, but I think they're important points to remember when you're thinking about what the demand side of the labor market looks like. But let's turn to the next topic, which is demography, the TOTS side of things. Remember I said every equation reduces your sales. <laughs> but what about identities? Well, this is an identity, right? It says output per person is output per hour times hours per worker times workers per person. And these are productivity times employment times participation rate. We're at full employment, pretty much. There's a little debate about maybe we're a, point, a tenth of a point or two away from full employment. We're pretty close there. We've got declining participation. That's for a variety of reasons. Big one is the demographics in terms of retiring. And we've got fairly anemic productivity growth. So if we want increased output per person, we can't expect anything much here. We can't expect too much here. And we haven't got a very good story there. So where does it come from? we look at productivity, this is productivity over time, we saw this period of relatively slow growth, rapid growth during the 90s, and now we're back to very slow growth during the uh, current period. 
if we look at the growth of the labor force, the 2020s will be the lowest growth ever since World War II. Here's the baby boomers back here. We saw big growth in the labor force, big growth in income, big growth in consumption because we were producing more stuff and new people were demanding it because there were more people around being employed. But now we're at this point, which is really very, very slow growth of the labor force. This is a, what I showed you before. This is showing you the growth of the population and the growth of the labor force. The labor force is growing at half the rate of the population, right? Half the rate of the population in the U.S. And it's very different across geographies. If you look up here, where we are in New England, it's aging very rapidly. That's true pretty much across the northern part of the U.S. Utah, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, they're growing younger. They're growing younger because there's a lot of migration of the young people. When you see the evening news and the lady in northern Michigan says, the kids have all left town, there's nobody left to restock the supermarket shelves, there's a lot to that. I mean, that's pretty much true in the sense that you're seeing a movement from rural to urban and from the northern states to the southern states, and it's mostly the younger people that are doing that migration. So what happens in this northern part of the U.S. is the industrial base has now become uh, Medicare and Social Security. So if you have a hospital, like the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, University of Michigan, medical center, so that's great. Then you'll survive because you've got this steady flow of income and people who are utilizing the services. But without a hospital, then it's, and without a Walmart, it's even worse, right? So you're seeing this issue, and what's the right policy? You can't save every small town in Michigan, even if you wanted to. So what kind of policies do you want to deal with this aging demographic shift that I'm just uh, describing? Without immigration, legal immigration here, you would see an absolute decline in the labor force in the U.S., okay? And that, obviously immigration is a sensitive issue these days, not only here but elsewhere, but the fact that you do not have sufficient workers to provide consumption for the retirees unless productivity dramatically increases, that's really a problem, okay? And we, oh, this is a participation rate. I took those graphs I showed you before and extended them where we're seeing participation rate in the labor force came down both for men uh, and for women. This is the growth of population in the labor force. U.S. labor market is already beginning to tighten. And if you look at the data, it's true for the next 15 to 25 years. We don't get back to equal growth for the population in the labor force until 2050, which is kind of remarkable because what caused the baby boom, World War II, 100 years later, you get back into an equilibrium in terms of the growth rate of the population in the labor force, which is also quite uh, remarkable. And we're in good shape <laughs> compared to the rest of the world because if you go look at Japan, Korea, Germany, Spain, Italy, France, 
they all have a super high dependency ratio, which is dependency ratio is just the number of people over 65 for uh, every 100 people working age. China looks good on these charts, but China has this looming time bomb from the one-child policy. And of course, the Chinese recognize this, are investing heavily in automation and heavily in artificial intelligence research because they anticipate they're going to have a smaller labor market 20 years from now. So right now it's okay, but it's headed uh, south. And of course, they relaxed the one-child policy, so it takes 20 years to raise a 20-year-old. 20, 20 so uh, if you plan far enough in advance, then you can actually ameliorate this to some extent. So uh, US and Sweden are actually uh, better. Chinese, as I said, is a little looser. UK is not bad. But you look at the difference between these countries, and it's not really driven by babies as much as by immigration policy. So the reason that Sweden looks good in this chart is because of their immigration policy. Same thing for the US and elsewhere. And it's, as you know, there are lots of political and economic uh, challenges because if it's immigration that's a solution to increasing the labor force, well they retire too. So they're part of the they become part of the non-labor force. And so you have to think about what the whole repercussions are in terms of um, immigrants and in terms of how that relates to progress in automation. So now the interesting thing is when we look at robots per worker Look at the company, look at the countries. It's the same countries we just saw, the ones that have the demographic hang up, hang up here. Korea, Japan, Germany, Spain. Korea, Japan, Germany, Italy, Sweden, Denmark, and so on. So the robots are already making their entry. Most of this is in auto plants, as I said earlier, that I described earlier because you're experiencing labor shortages earlier. Japan being prime point. If you want to see what the fissure looks like, go to Japan. Uh, this is a little slide I threw in because I thought it was interesting. Vending machines. Everybody's talking about retail robots. We've had retail robots for 50 years. They're called vending machines. <laughs> if you go to Japan, there's one machine for every 23 people. In the U.S. it's about half as much. I mean, one machine for 45 people. And you can buy anything. You can buy sodas, you can buy coffee, you can buy noodles, you can buy teeth, toothbrushes, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. Why? Because it doesn't pay to have a human being sit there to sell these things. It's much better off to do, do vending machines. And actually, I think this is one of the chief ways we're going to see the um, retail automation is through having more intelligent vending machines. One <coughs> or Black death put a little note of levity into this talk. 30% <laughs> of the population died. It took out 80 to 160 years to recover, but it was a great time to be alive if you were alive. <laughs> right? And of course, we saw high wages were the norm, land was available, serfdom disappeared, at least for 50 or 80 years. We saw a lot of labor-saving intervention. Well, that's kind of a picture of what we might see in the next 30 years. Because all of our intuitions and expectations are formed by what we've seen in the past, namely, lots of workers. There were women coming onto the labor market, and at the same time, we saw the baby boomers 
coming onto the labor market. So most of the time there wasn't really a shortage of workers. You could find workers when you wanted. But now when you look at the demographics, both of those trends have reversed. The women's entry into the labor force is pretty much asymptoted, and everybody's work has declined because of the baby boomers retiring. So now we're ending a period, I claim, where we're going to be seeing tight labor markets. And when we see tight labor markets, then we're going to be looking for ways to economize on labor. So the automation is coming along just in time to meet this demographic problem. Now, I don't want to be too sanguine about this because it could be there'll be massive advances in automation, which will impact the equilibrium in the labor market. But I think the more likely story is will be relatively slow movements there where we're seeing the demography march on. There's only one social science that can predict 20 or 30 years in the future, and that's demography. So we don't really know where the technology will be in 30 years, but we know where the demography will be in 30 years. Okay? Which is the bigger effect? demand side effect and the supply side effect. So this is my, first of all, that's a good research question. Here's my back of the envelope calculation. Asimoglu and Restrepo uh, use this Boston Consulting Report, aggressive scenario for robotic uh, workers led to employment to population ratio declines by 1.76% in the next decade. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics, looking at the employment to population ratio due to the demographic effect, holding technology constant, did you see the employment to population ratio declines by 2.7%. So the demographic effect is 50% larger than the automation effect given an aggressive forecast by BCG, and then using basically the standard Bureau of Labor Statistics forecast there. So that says tight labor markets, rising wages, if the supply shifts more than the demand shifts, right? Uh, uh, the demand shifts less than the supply shifts. Rising wages increase incentives to economize on labor. And it's even worse because the population is aging, and as people get more aging, more age, they get more expensive because you've got all of the problems with medical care and the afflictions of old age. <coughs> so uh, if you look at the uh, number of people over 65, that doubles by 2060. Uh, if there are advances in health care that increase lifespans, then it's even worse because the even, even more uh, people over 65, and the question is, how costly is that from the social viewpoint to uh, provide consumption for all of those people? So it's really a uh, problem, and the key issue is, how can we increase productivity? And that means, essentially, we need to find productive uses of all this robotics technology and the AI technology and the ML technology that's frightening people so much is actually critical in terms of providing the support that's necessary for the population at large. And I think that's a good place to, oh yes, well this is from the, uh, from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, personal health care aides, registered nurses, home health care aides, medical assistants, this is the nerds and nurses story right there in terms of uh, 
job categories for the future. That's the end. Thank you. So I'm happy to take questions. Yes. Why, why, why aren't wages going up more? It seems uh, like you skipped over that. No, I, I, well, it's a, it's a mystery to me. The only thing I would say is it looks like they are ticking up a bit. But it's slower than one would expect. So I, I agree with the question. But, but if you look at the boom areas, go look at San Francisco and New York, you do see wages picking up. The, What's the federal minimum wage now? 750 or something like that. In California, 15%. But you see signs in the stores, $16 an hour they're offering to workers. Not, and this is, this is working in a hamburger shop. This is the in and out. Uh, so we're seeing it tick up in those places first. But um, we'll, see, we'll see what develops in the next year. Yeah. So you presented a macro picture <coughs> at micro level. Where do you expect uh, the maximum dislocation? The what location? The maximum dislocation. Dislocation, yeah. Well, a lot of people look at autonomous vehicles because we have now, we have true autonomous vehicles operating in Chandler, Arizona, shuttling people around with no drivers or no other people in the car, just the passengers. So it's real. We, by the way, we've had autonomous tractors for at least a decade because it's a homogeneous environment. And like I said, uh, in other contexts, uh, we would have autonomous vehicles now if it weren't for those damn humans. <laughs> That's especially true in Boston, I think. <laughs> so the issue is, yes, if we closed the downtown and said autonomous vehicles only, or put a lane on the highway that said autonomous vehicles only, they would be there very quickly because once you have that homogeneous environment, the, um, the AIs and the robots could do fine. So there is a possibility of disruption there, but right now there are 50,000 job openings for truck drivers. They've got a very, very high turnover rate. It's about a six weeks course to become a truck driver. And uh, they have signing bonuses plus retention bonuses are getting up into the eighty-five dollars and $90,000 region. Figures I showed you were historical figures. And it's just very, very hard to keep those people because it's such a crappy job. So you are seeing this situation where probably, or hopefully, the optimistic scenario would say by the time the autonomous vehicles are really working on a systematic basis, you would find that replacing labor, but welcomed replacing labor because the people who were doing that job could get another better job. Probably in the service industry. Why do I say that? 80% of the labor market services these days. So we'll see. Obviously, there could be disruptions. As one curve shifts more than the other, or as one effect dominates the other, but overall, it looks like it should work out pretty well and in balance. At least that's my view. Yeah. So I'm wondering how does Google monetize these trends? Yeah. You've suggested some ways uh, better organizing information on YouTube, which is uh, you could sell more ads or credentialing. You mentioned. Yeah. 
um, Google Lens, I suppose. Again, yeah. you could tie that into ads or some other services. But what other? What about other things? What about self-driving well, cars? Well, when I talk to businesses about this, the first thing I say is, what are your plans for 10 years from now, now when uh, this much of the population is over 65? So the question there is, uh, the nice thing about providing services and goods for aging people is there are old people here now. So you can look at what designs are most helpful to that segment of the population. Because if you come up with things that are really popular with that segment of the population, there's going to be even more people in that sector as time goes on. So autonomous vehicles, those are really, really important to people who are aging because they want mobility, of course. So my recommendation to Google, I've been pushing this point at Google and elsewhere, is designed not just for the 25-year-olds, which is, of course, can be a very good market, but designed for the 65-year-old, because they're going to see more 65-year-olds as time goes by. And so you want products and services that are welcomed by them. And of course, we're doing a lot in healthcare with Verily, which is our medical equipment company. And we've got uh, Calico, which is longevity research and lots of things in this area. How do you uh, sort of factor in uh, the progress in the AI world as we, as we think about the level of autonomy and you know, the ubiquity of, of bots and, and algorithms and, and really the complexity of the data sets and the size of the data sets, doesn't that allow these, doesn't that allow automation to go into the high growth part of the labor markets? In other words, you talked about cognitive versus, you know, doesn't that allow uh, a greater dislocation and higher, so financial services, for example, uh, Well, and again, this idea of cognitive <coughs> assistance is really very important you, could, you may remember the days when we had these things called paper maps, you know, and we had, <laughs> we had these things where you actually had to plan a journey from A to B and all this stuff. It's incredible. How do we do all those things? It's like kid, uh, mother told me that her, her child asked her, Mom, how did people meet each other at airports before there were mobile phones? How did we? It was very complicated. So as you ha can offload more of these cognitive tasks onto the machines, and the humans can work on the creative side, and maybe the humans can work less, just like I said, three-day weekend, that's perfectly uh, conceivable. You would see a reduction in the work week, as we've seen in the last 200 years. Um, so I guess my feeling is we'll see more of this, but the question is robotics, is a lot harder than the uh, than the AI side, in my view. Uh, look at agriculture as a good example. It's routine to harvest corn and wheat with machines, but to harvest apples, peaches, plums, pears, strawberries, these soft fruits, it's actually quite hard. Maybe there's progress being made, but it's still <coughs> difficult. You know, I like to say I had the four worst jobs in America because I grew up on a farm, an orchard, so as an agricultural worker. And then I uh, worked in high school in the Dairy Queen, so I was a fast food worker. And then I worked in a factory uh, one summer, Timken Roller Bearings. 
And then I was Dean of Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. You could uh, automate all those jobs <laughs> and remove the dull, tedious, and unpleasant labor component. Yes. Just speaking of education, um, I'm curious if you lay these trends, you have policy prescriptions for our education system and, and, and um, interested in the juxtaposition between a growing labor shortage and an argument that some economists would make that a large part of the educational system is about signaling, not necessarily punching the clock uh, to, to get relevant skills, but just putting in time to show an employer you're good, going to be a good worker. lately was from a teenager who said, you know, high school is a lot like answering the question, how would I do this if I didn't have Google? <laughs> <laughs> because you might be asked to take square roots, and you know, we can do that. And you might be asked for historical facts, and you might be asked for uh, whatever economic issues, and all the answers are there. You know, they're out there. And what we should be teaching kids is how to formulate the right questions, how to have the good work habits, how to stay organized, how to use the tools effectively. But we aren't. We're asking them to duplicate skills that a machine can do already. So I see that as a big problem. And I think this signaling issue is, there's, there's something to it, clearly, because Lots and lots of jobs don't actually require a college education. Uh, we think a college education is good for your soul, it's good for your cognition, it's good for maybe problem solving and examples and other things, but uh, it's actually not necessary in the employment point of view. So there's a lot of debates about this. Did we? drop algebra and put in statistics as a replacement, or should we do this, or should we do that? But I think one of the really important things to do is to think about this question, am I really training people in a skill that's duplicative what we can already get from the internet, from Google or anybody else? Yep. Oh, I wanted to hear your thoughts about the emotional capability of robots, especially in the service industry. So um, I was wondering whether it's possible within the next 30 or 40 years or so, whether robots can establish emotional connections with customers, and if not, what critical steps we would have to take in order to develop such robots. Well, I think we're seeing a lot of work in this area in Japan, just for the reasons I described earlier. And uh, the stories in the press, at least, I don't haven't looked at the scientific literature of first-hand cases indicate that yes, robots can provide empathetic uh, uh, care and help for people. So I expect we'll see that in the future. Yeah? Um, so with a shift to services, jobs and services, wouldn't you also see a shift to the job availability in city centers? Yeah. And how do you think about building infrastructure and housing? I mean, I, I live in San Francisco, so. Uh, and you get a four-year <laughs> yeah. So it used to be 
that to be in the Bay, in the Bay Area was positive in terms of recruiting. Uh, potential employees saw this as a plus. Not anymore. People want to live in Portland, Provo, Austin, Ann Arbor, Pittsburgh, you know, all these cities that are a little smaller, a little, or they're smaller, that are more manageable and they're more affordable, with less congestion and, and uh, potentially better lifestyle. And we are seeing out-migration from the Bay Area, as you probably know. Uh, basically, you know, we went from San Francisco, rents got expensive, people moved to Oakland, Oakland got expensive, people moved to Lafayette, and then now, of course, they're leaving the Bay Area and going to Portland. Uh, and that's part of the equilibrium process, that as the rents get high, only the people who afford those rents are there, and you're seeing migration as a response. So suppose autonomous vehicles really come online pretty quickly, Maybe those small towns in the Midwest will survive because they have food delivery, they have supplies <coughs> delivery, they have autonomous vehicles to take them to the hospital. And so the issue of commuting and having affordable real estate and all these things could be the savior of some of those, some of those places. We'll see, we'll see how it works out. Way in the back. So, Sean, um, you refer to disruptions that take place. I keep thinking about the last election when we talked about politics and the fact that we're not very good at side payments. And so there are responses to these frictions. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the policy prescriptions implied by where you have in mind or have described where we wish to go and how we would get there without, perhaps, um, disruptions that end up derailing the process completely? That's really an excellent question. And I have to say, I don't have anything particularly novel to say. I could, I understand why you would want uh, some kind of employment assistance, job resistance, retirement uh, policies, and so on. I think policies like the ones I described of allowing for a soft retirement would be very helpful in the U.S. context. Of course, all these things need study because they're potentially good ideas, but we don't necessarily know about the, the downside or the negative ramifications. So I, I think uh, it can be accomplished. It's really a question of the political will. And of course, we will run up against uh, serious problems on the pension front and on the uh, entitlement programs, etc. because as the population ages, you're seeing more and more of an intergenerational transfer, which is not necessarily going to be universally popular. It would be popular among the voters, the elderly voters, but not necessarily popular among the young voters. And when you talk to the millennials, they're much more pessimistic about the future than we ever were or I am personally, but I think that is a concern. These intergenerational transfers are significant. Yes, sorry. I, I found the point you made, for instance, about various jobs like groundskeeper, having 35 different tasks, very compelling, that these jobs are sometimes more complex than a lot of us realize. 
But I have to say myself, I'm the groundskeeper for my condo association, and I also the snow removal. We had all these gangsters who would rob us every year because the condo association would hire terrible people to do the job. So I now do it. But I would say on this point that the jobs are very complex. I would say over 80% of my job in the summer is to cut the lawn. And in the winter, over 80% is snow removal. Now, I saw we had robotics people come in saying how they were developing Roomba-type devices that could take care of the snow removal and also cut the lawn. And so even though there's a lot of tasks and I buy into this complexity thing, I could see how these jobs could become so much just incredible levels of underemployment in the jobs. And I'm wondering if you could discuss that dimension. I think you touched on it a little bit when you talk about the Netherlands mm -hmm. and how little people are working. But I'm wondering if some of these jobs, just so much of the core tasks would be reduced so much that you, you know, they really wouldn't be, you know, really full-time jobs. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, I agree, and, and I kind of alluded to that. We said, yes, you can automate any one of these tasks and things like uh, robotic snow removers. Because, again, what's interesting about it is you've got one layout at your condo, and you can train the system to work in that one layout, and then for another layout, you have to go to train that system, and so on, so on, so on. It's a... It's a homogeneous environment, which is going to be a lot easier to roboticize. And the, uh, you know, the Roomba possibility is there, although I have to say I think that uh, it'll be a while before that technology is really perfected, like a decade or so, in my, in my opinion. But uh, for certain tasks, absolutely, you'll be able to, to do that. And remember, California gardens are much more complex than Boston gardens. <laughs> There's a lot of different things you have to do. In fact, and, and I was talking to somebody about this. We could do a, a task, uh, we could do a little project at Google where you took a tree pruning exercise and you had before and after, or a master pruner pruned your tree, uh, and then you could create a machine learning system without much difficulty. If you have the before after, you can create something that would say, well, these are the branches you should cut, here, 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 and here. But you would still need a human to go in and cut them, uh, which is, that's part of the cognitive assist. So a lot of things we're thinking about is what can you offload and what's going to stay on the human side. Yeah. Uh, so as the activities and organizations transfer from tots to bots, how do you expect the returns to scale, the benefits of return to scale in an organization in terms of the management and ownership of, say, the bots to change in the future? Well, uh, what's interesting is a lot of times we talk about economies of scale when we're looking at a constant returns to scale technology. So when McDonald's learns how to make hamburgers or whatever, then you can just replicate that over and over again and get essentially constant returns of scale to provide this to a, to a mass audience. And so we see that all the time with fast food services and, and other uh, services of that store. Walmart is an example as well. You just reproduce the Walmart store over and over again. 
Well, there's a challenge to Walmart now of Amazon, but Amazon's doing very similar thing. They're duplicating the warehouses from place to place, and they once they get the procedures and the practices nailed down to be efficient, they can scale that in a constant returns to scale model, right? The software, that is true increasing returns, because there's a big fixed cost of developing it and a low cost of copying it. But I would say even there, um, our textbook model is that you do this once, you develop it, and then you deploy it as many times as necessary. But the truth of the matter is uh, you have to keep improving it. So the software is never done exactly. It's something where there's a continued effort to move the software forward to meet these new challenges. And we do that at Google, of course, all the time. We're consist you know, continuously revising old code to bring it up to date in terms of new services, new hardware, et cetera, et cetera. So um, on the, what you really want, I think, is people, is, is you really want to build something that you can replicate easily and scale it up in a way that can serve a mass market very quickly. Sometimes there are the increasing returns to scale, but even with just constant returns to scale, that's good enough. That's my view, at least. Yeah. Just building on that, I think about medicine, yeah. and what Rarely is doing, you know, I think a lot of people can make the case that, let's say, in radiology, you might be better off going to machines than to I think that evidence is sort of mounting every day, and eventually, you know, this will come through. So the question is, is it a complement to the, will this be, a, will the AI be a complement to radiologists, or will it be a substitute? Uh, and even if it's a complement, do we need as many radiologists as uh, as what might be an MGA or a radium here and so forth? So I just want to hear sort of your thoughts about for this complement versus substitute argument. Even if it's a complement, like you, you might still reduce the, the the, the pool of labor that's doing that, that task now? Yeah, so uh, a little of each, but your question was, would you need as many radiologists? The answer is probably no. As the technology improves, and it's already pretty good, then you can handle the clear cases of uh, somebody where there's no problem, somebody where there's a serious problem, and then you have a collaboration between the radiologists and the machine on the ambiguous cases and maybe there'll be some group decision process where multiple people and multiple programs, multiple algorithms look at the same uh, phenomenon. So same thing with, go down to the cashiers. Just like I said earlier, the cashiers are going to be likely fewer in number as more becomes automated, but they'll still continue to be exception handling just like they'll be in radiology. So it's a case of not that they disappear overnight, which is what you think from looking at some of the news reports, yes. but they disappear more slowly as you can master more and more tasks. And, but, but that's the, one of the highest paid medical professions yeah. out there. And so we can imagine in the US and in developed countries there's gonna be a lot of resistance. Right, but it already, is it, is it not true that there's been considerable outsourcing from humans in high-paid yeah, countries to lower-paid yeah, countries for radiologists. Yeah. 
So it's not, again, as if the salaries change overnight. It's this process where you're seeing human human substitution and then human machine substitution. But back to price point, I, mean, I think there's a, there's a bit of like who paid. Right, right now, there's no model for if I have a, a you know a, an AI making a diagnostic as to the insurance company is going to pay for it or not. And so there's, there's a whole range of issues in, the, in, in our markets that will be good. But I can imagine massive benefits in emerging economies where the labor pool doesn't even exist. Well, I, I would bet the insurance companies would pay because it's a more cost-effective technology. I mean, if it is a more cost-effective technology, they certainly pay. And another example of this is the insurance companies where uh, they have better monitoring technologies. So if you are a state farm customer, you can take a little gadget and put it in your dashboard system and get a 15% deduction in your insurance bill because you've got more effective monitoring. <coughs> so an interesting case is you know, thinking about various crises. Uh, I was talking about aging, but another aspect is not aging. Suppose you had dramatic improvements in life extension. Well, first thing that happens is all the insurance companies go broke. Uh, and plus the federal government but, you know, and lots of other things, it would be very extreme disruptions from that thing, and yeah, it could happen. I mean, if the technology really improves, you could get dramatic changes. We've seen dramatic changes over the last 50 years, right? So, think about pluses and minuses. Yeah? It's a similar question, How? but you know the old saying, when you're out of work, it's a recession, yes, yes. but when I'm out of work, it's a depression, right? Even if there are significant productivity benefits. If we just look at the United States, do you see us doing anything particularly smart or particularly stupid in anticipation of this dearth, which the media, because they've been wiped out in the last decade, you know, they're oblivious to for personal reasons. There are a few authors who are writing about this. Greg Ipp at the Wall Street Journal had a nice piece about uh, demography. And there are labor economists who are certainly well aware of these things, but it hasn't penetrated the public consciousness very much uh, because they're much more concerned with next quarter or next year than they are concerned about what will happen 10 years from now. But uh, we'll see it, you know, obviously I mentioned it. We saw it in Japan, Korea, uh, China first, and we will be able to learn from some of those countries, Germany, Italy would be other examples. So the fact that we're better off than many is helpful in that respect. But do, you, do you see us learning from those countries <laughs> that have even higher labor rigidities than we do? Well, I saw them learning not so much on the labor market, but on the technology side of things uh, in terms of things like the sophisticated vending machines and so on as a labor-saving device or artificial intelligence techniques that extend the capabilities of robots and AIs and so on. So it's, it, on the labor market side, yeah, of course, it's a, it's a different story. Yeah. So your, your, your talk had a big place for international comparisons and for labor migration as, an, as immigration. Oh, yeah, okay. I can but, see where you're going. Yeah, but not international trade. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so that raises let's go a couple of different questions, but right. let me ask one is do you see the uh, effects on the labor market more in the tradable sector or the non-tradable sector? And and how would you think about those differences yeah. and those effects? Well, remember the non-tradable sector is getting smaller and smaller. They say there are barbers, I guess, are the classic example, but hey, robotic barbers, not so impossible. Uh, what I thought you were going to do is you were going to say, well, not every country is getting older. And that's really an yes, important also point. Yes, trade and productivity. Right, because you look at India, Nigeria, those are the two big counterexamples, and, and uh, Africa in general uh, is getting older. And uh, then you have a global issue, not just the internal transfers from young to old that we see in country by country, but there's also a global question. And, and the technology that's developed in, let's say, China, the US, Japan, that's labor-saving, that may be very helpful for their problems, but it's not necessarily helpful for the problems in Nigeria and India. So you could have this inappropriate technology story, which has been around for a long time. It's not a new story, but it could be exacerbated because of this, uh, these kinds of uh, changes. So I don't really have a good answer to what, what the geopolitical situation will look like when you've got these uh, changing demographics, but I can bet that it will be an issue. And questions of, you know, what is, uh, you know, outsourcing services, well, there's, you know, the U.S. has a surplus in services, uh, and there's a lot of um, uh, things like training materials for AI. Google released 9.5 million labeled images uh, for people doing AI systems. But who do you think did the labeling? Let me tell you, was it a high wage person who did that labeling? It was a person who had a substantially lower wage. And same thing with lots of other materials of this sort, that there's a trade in services, in this case information services, but it's the humans doing the labeling for the machines to be trained. Yeah? So one thing that I find interesting is the power of consumer taste to sort of manage transitions. Like I think about the buy local movement, yeah. you know, sort of reaction to changes in the production system, to some extent bioorganic. Um, when you think about autonomous vehicles, perhaps there's some overreaction to the frequency which accidents happen there. Um, I'm curious, you know, how you think about it, how Google thinks about it, because, you know, as a business you can think there are some ways we can shape sort of consumer taste and perception through marketing efforts. Um, I, you know, I come back to the, the uh, snow removal Roombas, I can imagine like a bi-human, you know, reaction to something like that. I don't know. But I, I'm wondering like what, are there certain areas that you think like Maybe we have to worry in particular about consumer aggregate taste here. Is there some way we can manage that? Um, I think in general it's going to start right. to smooth out some of these employment issues. That we're about. Well, GMOs are the poster child for this, right? The genetically modified, uh, uh, what's the GMO? GM organism. So, um, and there's been tremendous advance in robotics in agriculture, agritech. So now, for example, they'll have tractors that are fully automated. 
that go down the field and use machine vision to recognize what's a plant and what's a weed and pluck the weed. No herbicides necessary. It's just doing hoeing, but it's automatic hoeing, mechanized hoeing. And there are factories that grow food inside the former warehouse, for example, that are uh, growing it completely hydroponically and you get beautiful fruit with a good taste and it's easy to harvest and manage because you, again, control the environment, just like the example of assembly line. So it's like an assembly line for food. And by the way, there is a strange little footnote on that. Henry, where did Henry Ford get the idea for the assembly line? Anybody know? It's in his biography, so it's pretty definite, uh, his autobiography. Uh, he went to Chicago and saw the meat packing plants, and they would have the carcass go down the plant, and somebody would cut off the steaks, and somebody would cut off this, and somebody would cut off that. He said, look, if they can disassemble a cow, I can assemble a car. <laughs> and that was a model for assembly, running the, running the meat packing plant in the reverse. You learn these fun facts. <laughs> found it interesting that your first slide on education was about, appropriately so, about the how-to videos at Google. Yeah, yeah. Let's say you were back at Berkeley and giving advice to the team there yeah. about what they should do in online education or any institution similar to that. What, where can they focus? What should they be doing? Yep. So the information school, the school that I founded at Berkeley, is actually a big provider of online education in uh, data science. And they've done a really great job in doing it. Back to the signaling question that came earlier, part of that is a credentialing, so you can get the credential from Berkeley. And part of it is the content, where we've gotten really good video content, and then there's a lot of monitoring. And I think the model used here and HBS is kind of the wave of the future because there's such great content on the web in all of these different areas involving technology, cognition, manual labor, whatever, that the assignment is watch that lecture and we'll talk about it tomorrow, which I am told is reasonably commonly done here. Uh, but I think that's going to be a much wider usage because why bother to reproduce a lecture that's already been done in a very effective way by someone else. So the real challenge is getting people to access this material, vetting it for accuracy, uh, credentialing it, and then using that as a springboard to deeper discussion. So you've been doing this for what? 40 years, more. But everybody will be doing it, I think, in the future. Yeah. It was interesting to see the quote of Elon Musk admitting mistake, right? Right. So I was wondering, is your sense that the lack of productivity growth right now is due to some systematic mistakes that perhaps businesses are making or not recombining the tasks, perhaps, or not leveraging the potential of the technologies that are emerging? Um, and if so, what would you recommend when they are customers? Yeah. Well, I think we've gotten pretty good at <coughs> classic method of production, the assembly lines and the robotic uh, consumer electronics assembly and so on. And so part of it is just it's harder and harder to improve in those areas. The other part is that the economy has become much more 
service-oriented, and it's much harder to measure quality improvements in services. And a third factor is um, there's a lot of uh, strange things in um, GDP accounting when you look at the process of globalization. So a standard thing is factoryless goods producers, which is a mouthful. Uh, that would be Apple would be an example, but Google's an example too. All the design, all the softwares done in the Bay Area, just in one location. Uh, the hardware is assembled, parts and labor in, in China, $5 labor cost to assemble an iPhone, for example. And then that $150 worth of parts and labor becomes worth $500 when you add in the software, which remember was domestically produced. But when you look at these import statistics, it's much easier to count a physical product going through the port of Los Angeles than it is to count an email attachment going to China. So the intangibles are kind of shortchanged in GDP, and even though we're making tremendous productivity uh, improvements by the ordinary use of the word, they don't show up at GDP. So here's an example, my favorite example. is back in 2000, there were 80 billion photos taken in the world. They cost about 50 cents a piece for film and developing. Fast forward to 2015, there's 1.6 trillion photos taken in the world, 20 times as many. They cost approximately zero. They're not in GDP. If you go look at the price index for the <coughs> photography industry, they include cameras, film, and developing, none of which are used anymore. <laughs> so you've got a really strange issue where the smartphone, I'll pull it out again, there's the smartphone, probably reduced GDP. Why? Because they substituted, people aren't buying as many cameras, people aren't buying as many GPS systems, people aren't buying as many music players, people aren't buying viewers. Why? Because they have all been rolled into this device and there hasn't been a quality adjustment for this device. And even if there were a quality adjustment, it wouldn't show up in GDP because it's an import. So you have the value of the import goes up and the value of what you're consuming goes up and it nets out of GDP because it's not counted as produced in America, even though the software, which is the most important part, is 100% produced in America and shows up on the investment side of GDP. But the return to that investment, that is the return to, to the uh, creation, the investment that's put into building the software, isn't counted as a, as a product improvement in the conventional statistics. So some of that difference in productivity is really on the measurement side. And there's a lot of arguing back and forth about how much of it is really uh, measurement and how much of something else. All right. We're very strict about our our time. Okay. That, that was wonderful, Hal. Let's please thank you.